This is God's word for us tonight. It is trustworthy and true, and he gives it to us in his love. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be, so it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me or who sees me. And therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael, which means God sees. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of the Lord. Um, so I want to read to you a news article from 2012, and the headline of this article is Smoking Orangutan uh, Forced to Quit. So I'll read this to you. Um, an orangutan who became the star attraction of an Indonesian zoo for her penchant for puffing on cigarettes will be forced to quit cold turkey, a conservationist said on Saturday. Visitors began throwing lit cigarettes into the cage of 15-year-old Tori when she was five, and the female orangutan had developed an addiction over the years, the Center for Orangutan Protection Coordinator said. He also said that Tori's parents were smokers. It's a thing in the zoo. Um, and he wrote, until we get approval from the zoo to move her, a guard has been placed outside her cage to make sure she doesn't smoke. She's going th undergoing therapy, and she will have to go cold turkey. All right, this story reminds me of Genesis 16. Here's why. When we read stuff like this, we think, that's just not right. Like this orangutan smoking in the zoo, that's just, not, that's just not right. Visitors throwing cigarettes when the orangutan is five, teaching it to smoke, that's not right. Quitting cold turkey, like can't you get Tori a jewel? I mean, it's just, it's just not right. <laughs> it's not right. And we have a similar reaction to this passage, right? What is, what is going on in this passage? God has promised Abraham that he will have a son. Ten years have passed, they're still childless, and then in verse two, Sarah says to Abram, go then. It feels like God is against me, let's not wait for him anymore. And then Sarah gives Abram specific instructions. He said, she says to him, go sleep with my maidservant, perhaps I can build a family through her. Now, 
His or her suggestion would not have raised any eyebrows. It was completely legal. It was culturally acceptable. It was a common way of having children if you were barren at the time. She was saying, I have a maidservant. I have this secondary wife. And when or if she gets pregnant, Hagar's children would be Sarah's children. But as we read this, our English translations actually keep us from seeing the brutality of the situation. There's a Hebrew scholar at Berkeley named Robert Alter, and he says this about the passage. He says, the tradition of English versions that render this term handmaiden, maid or maidservant, they impose a misleading sense of European gentility on the sociology of the story. The fact is that Hagar belongs to Sarah as her property, and the ensuing complications of the relationship build on this fact. So what he's saying is that maidservant is making the language too genteel. It's too nice. Because when we hear maidservant, we think someone who helps out with the dishes and helps out with the cooking and cleaning, but that's not what's going on here. The reason that Hagar's children would become Sarah's children is because Sarah owns Hagar, because she's Sarah's property. And that means her children would be Sarah's children. And then it gets worse. Verses five and six are really raw. When Hagar gets pregnant, she, we're told she looks at Sarah with contempt. This woman who was just a slave, sorry, Sarah looks at Hagar with contempt. This woman who is just a slave, she now has status within the community because she's bearing Abraham's child. She has status. She now actually has something that Sarah doesn't. And today in Asian cultures, um, it's, it's culturally inappropriate for an inferior to make eye contact with a superior Um, Someone who's ahead of you or an authority over you. And I can just imagine in this scene that uh, Hagar starts making eye contact with Sarah. She has real contempt for her. I have something that you don't. There are all kinds of ways that that Hagar was no longer subservient, subservient to Sarah. And at least, at the least, now she's got the reality. Sarah has the reality that her husband spent a night with a woman who wasn't her and that this baby is proof. So in verse five, Sarah bursts in and says to Abram, you are responsible. I'm suffering. I gave my servant to your embrace. You are responsible. And this this word embrace is a euphemism. In Hebrew, literally, she says, I put my servant in your lap, between your legs, using this graphic statement showing the rawness of her emotions, her helplessness, her anger, her humiliation, her despair. I put my servant girl between your legs and this is what I get for it? And then Abraham responds with this almost unbelievable callousness. In verse six, he says, she's your servant. She's in your power. You do what you want with her. He's saying, she's still your slave. I'm not responsible for this mess. If you want something to happen, you take care of it. This is Abram who's supposed to be, right, the hero of the faith. And he's saying to his wife, treat that woman like a slave. Do whatever you want to her. And then we're told that Sarah dealt harshly with her. And this word in Hebrew is the word that's used to describe what the Egyptians did to the Hebrew slaves in Egypt when the Hebrews weren't making bricks quick enough. Do you know what that means? That means that Sarah beat her and then Hagar runs. So what is this doing in the Bible? Like why, why is the orangutan smoking in the zoo? What is this doing in the Bible? Why is this in the Bible? People read the story and then they say, how can you trust this book? Like, these are supposed to be the heroes of the faith. These are supposed to be our moral exemplars. Look at them. 
Look at how the women are being demeaned. Look at how slavery is being condoned. Look at all of the injustice and the exploitation. Look at how Sarah and Abraham are complicit in it. They are the oppressors. And this is why many people say, you know, I just can't take the Bible literally. This is why I believe, people say, this is why I believe that faiths that are rooted in the Bible are socially oppressive and backwards. That this is a book of oppression, and if we take it literally, we'll be oppressors. That, like, this passage, this story is confusing and ridiculous and disgusting. And if that's you, if that's how you feel about this, first, thank you for coming tonight. I'm glad that you're here. And I'd love for you to ask yourself, why are you offended? Why are you disgusted by this? Because my theory is that you have been, you've, you're coming to this text having been sold a view of the Bible before you've ever even read it. Most people think the Bible is about, they think that Christianity is about, I think the Bible is a book of virtues. It's a book of rules. It's morals. It's about how we're supposed to live. It's a collection of stories telling us how we ought to live. If you imitate the characters, these moral exemplars, then God will bless you. That's what people think that the Bible is about and what they think Christianity is about. And then when you read the Bible with your mind already made up, without, without listening to what it's actually saying, you come to a text like this and you say, this is ridiculous. But look at this text. This text proves to you that the Bible is not a book of morals of how to live, but it's a book of good news. Right? It's not a collection of stories of moral exemplars, but it's a record of God's grace. It's a record of God's gracious intervention in the lives of people who don't deserve it, who don't seek it, who frankly resist it, and who don't even appreciate it after they've been saved by it. So what is this story teaching us? This story is teaching us that the very best human beings in the history of the world are moral and spiritual failures. No matter who they are, they cannot raise above their own culture, above the brutality of their own times. They cannot escape the self-centeredness of their own hearts. But it's also teaching us that God continues to come to them, to not give up on them, to speak to them and to help them and to aid them and to save them and rescue them again and again and again. See, the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be. It's primarily about God and who he is. It's not about you and what you should do. It's about God and what God has done. It's not a book of good advice telling you how you should live to get his blessing. It's a book of good news. It's the record of God and what he's done, how he continually puts his grace in the lives of those who don't seek it, who resist it, who don't appreciate it, even after they've been saved by it. And if that's what the Bible's about, then this isn't a surprising story at all. So if that's why this story is here, what is it showing us? Why would Abram, the father of the faith, why would Abram and Sarah do this? Well, a couple of reasons stand out. The first would be their disappointment with God. God still hasn't come through. We're told that 10 years have passed since God made this, problem, this, this promise to Abraham for there to be a child and... They've been waiting for 10 years, and Sarah is old, and she can't have a kid, and she's disappointed. God hasn't come through on his promise when and how she expected him to. She's disappointed. And the second thing is that being able to bear children was essential to your identity in the ancient Near East. And Sarah was barren. Being able to have children, having children is what gave you dignity in this culture. And if you were unable to have children, you experienced shame. Because everything was connected to your family. 
your future, your sense of worth, your wealth. Everything was centered on the family. And for the woman, it was being about being able to have children. Right? And that's still true today in traditional cultures around the world. So a question for you, what are you disappointed with God about? What are you disappointed with God about? And second, what do you look for or what do you look to for your sense of identity or purpose or worth or value? To ask it another way, where do you experience barrenness? Look at Sarah in verse two. She says, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Abraham, go into my servant so that I shall obtain children by her. Right? Sarah believed in God. She prayed. She practiced her religion. But when she felt the pressure, she gave into the culture. She was religious until push came to shove, and she had to choose between God and a baby, and she chose the baby. This is what this means. When your culture tells you, you have to do this or you're nobody, and every culture does this. When your culture tells you, you have to do this or be this or you're nobody, when your culture does this to you, something deeply spiritual is going on. You take that into yourself, and that becomes your real God. That thing becomes your real salvation, your real significance. That's what's happening to Sarah. She drops the religiosity and shows that the real thing she's after, the thing that she has to have in order to feel significant, is the thing that her culture has told her. So what is our culture telling you that you have to have or you have to be to be significant? What is our culture telling you that you have to have to not be barren? Where do you feel this pressure? Where do you think or feel... If I achieve that, if I get that thing, then I'll not be barren. Um, I think the the three most powerful categories of significance and barrenness on either side of this are power, sex, and money. And I just want to think through these with you for a few minutes. So first, sex or beauty. Our culture tells us, tells you, marry whoever you want, which is different than a traditional culture, which which arrange your marriage. But our culture tells you, marry whoever you want. But that's actually not true. That's not what our culture tells you. Our culture tells you, marry whoever you can attract, which is a really heavy burden to carry. This is why you feel so much pressure to look a certain way, because our culture has defined barrenness as an inability to attract others. And this crushes you. Did you know... Did you know that in traditional cultures, like Abraham and Sarah's, they don't have issues with eating disorders? Why do so many of us struggle with eating or not eating? It's it's because our culture has defined barrenness in these categories. And y'all, I know there is so much pressure to look a certain way or to be a certain size because barrenness is defined around our appearance and our ability to attract a mate. And what happens when you give into this definition of barrenness? What does it do to you? What does it do to others? How about money or wealth? Our culture says, display who you are and what you can buy. I'm not barren because I can buy my way out of my barrenness. I can earn my salvation through works. I've got, two, I've got one day free shipping with Amazon, right? I can buy my way out of this experience of feeling barren. And then in the inverse, I feel barren because I can't afford to dress like my friends do or drive what my friends drive or go on trips where my friends go on trips. Now, maybe you don't buy into this. Maybe instead you have located yourself in a subculture and your subculture says that you display that you don't care what money can buy. 
So you say they are barren because they are trying to earn their salvation through their wealth. Well, how about power or status or social capital? Mainstream, mainstream culture says it this way. You gotta be at the top of the heap, whether it's individually in your group or your group in the pecking order. I'm not barren because I belong to X or Y group. This is why people are so concerned about whether or not they're top tier. Right? They build this existential hedge around self-secured salvation. I must do everything I can at all costs to not be barren. And the flip side of this is I feel barren because I didn't get into that fraternity or sorority that I wanted to. I feel barren because I'm not in the in-group. And then the subculture says, well, our group isn't defined by status, right? We're anti-status. They are barren because they're trying to earn their salvation through their social status. And just to add in, because I know this is where we are in the semester, um, grades and academic pressure as a place where you experience barrenness. Right? You, all knows what this, you all know what this feels like, the barrenness around academics. And how do you respond to this, this fear of being barren? Right? You, you double down, chasing the 4-0, chasing the dean's list because you don't want to be barren by wake standards. We're doing the same thing that Sarah and Abraham did. They were looking to their surrounding culture to answer their problems of disappointment and identity. Saying, I feel disappointed, I don't know who I am, but for these other people, this works for them. All the people around us are doing it. If they're barren, they can just use the culturally appointed means of getting what they want. And so 4,000 years ago in the ancient Near East, this was solving their problem of barrenness by having a child using their slave girl as their surrogate. That's what they're doing. Taking their cues from their surrounding culture to deal with their disappointment and find their worth and purpose and identity. And here's the thing. Sarah was religious until she had to choose between God and not being barren. And she chose her culture's definition of success, of significance, having a baby. And the deep irony of this story is that in this, Sarah becomes enslaved too. Hagar isn't the only slave in this story. Sarah becomes enslaved. She has this inner slavery, this inner bondage. Hagar is a literal slave, and Sarah is a slave too. She's disappointed with God. She's experiencing barrenness. She's unwilling to wait. She thought she could fix it on her own. She ends up making things worse, which leads to this inner bondage. Our intern, Matt, says that it's like this inner bondage is like we're a haunted house on the inside. Your heart becomes a slave to this game. Whether you are in the mainstream or in a subculture, you're enslaved to it. Your barrenness, whatever it is, whether you're dividing yourself by it or against it, it becomes the thing that enslaves you. It puts you in bondage. And if you're listening to me and you're thinking, well, John, I'm not in bondage, then you're actually very much in bondage. If you think, well, I'm an individual, I'm free from all this, you're part of a culture. You're part of some culture. Maybe it's an anti-mainstream subculture, something. Your family, your friends, your culture, your subculture, all of them are telling you, you must do this or you will be barren. And then we internalize this and we think we've got to convince ourselves. We internalize it because we have to convince ourselves and others that we're okay. We internalize it, it becomes our God, it becomes our salvation. But what about Abram and all this? Right? That's a lot of Sarah and Hagar. What about Abram? Well, every commentator, Jewish, Christian, liberal, conservative, say that the narrator here gives us an unmistakable signal that Abram is actually the one who's screwing up the most. 
that the person who is most at fault in the story is Abram. Look at verse three. Abram agrees to what Sarah says. It says that he listened to the voice of his wife. It says that he agreed. Well, it doesn't say he said that. He, he listens. He does. He listens to the voice of Sarah. End of verse two. He listens to the voice of his wife. What is this saying? This is saying the language of verse three is a word-for-word echo of Genesis 3 with Adam. Abram is falling, he's failing here, not because he listened to his wife, but because he did the exact same thing that Adam did. In Genesis 2, God places Adam and Eve in the garden and he gives them instructions on how to live. He tells them, you may eat of any tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shouldn't eat. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And then in Genesis 3, a snake enters the garden First off, how did a snake get in the garden? Always wondered that. I think it's Adam's fault. He was supposed to guard the garden. He didn't. The snake gets in, already showing his passivity, right? He's already not doing what he's supposed to do. And then the snake slithers up to Eve, says to her, did God actually say? And, and Adam is there. He is there with Eve when she's being tempted by the serpent, standing next to her as the serpent has this conversation with his wife, tempting her to take the fruit of the tree and eat it, to disobey God. And here's what's happening. God promised a blessing to Adam and Eve if they obey. But instead of waiting on God, instead of receiving the blessing, they grasp for it. They take it. They go for it on their own. They try to achieve it. And the language of Genesis 16 is a word-for-word echo of Genesis 3. Abram listened to the voice of his wife rather than listening to the voice of God. Eve took the fruit, saw that it was good for food, it was a delight to the, the eyes, and she gave it to her husband. Sarah took her servant and gave it to Abram, and Abram passively agreed. So why is the author doing this? He's showing us that these two women are two approaches to the blessing. If, Ab- if Abram says, I'm going to get the blessing through Sarah, then he's going to have to receive it as a complete act of grace. He's going to have to receive it as a miracle because his wife Sarah is barren. But if he had tries to ach- achieve the blessing through Hagar, doing it through his human ability because Sarah is infertile, but he's not. So what we see is that Hagar is the way of works and that Sarah is the way of grace. Hagar is the way to get God's blessing through achieving. Sarah is the way to get God's blessing through receiving. With Hagar, Abram can get God's blessing through performing and achieving, but with Sarah, he has to patiently wait to receive divine intervention through human history. And if we flip forward in our Bibles 2,000 years, in Galatians 4, St. Paul unpacks this. In the middle of the first century, he's writing a letter to the church in, in Galatia, and there's this debate happening in the church as to how we get God's blessing that has come in Jesus Christ. How do we receive the blessing? How do we receive God's favor? How does the promised blessing of Abraham come to his people? And there's one group in the church that says that the way we get God's blessing is by obeying all the rules. That if you want real life, if you want real satisfaction, if you want Um, real salvation that it's going to come through you obeying. It's going to come through you doing the right thing. It's it's up to you. Your salvation is contingent on you doing it right, on getting it right. And Paul writes to them and says, listen up, those of you who want to save yourselves by obeying the law. It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and the other by a free woman. The son of the slave woman was born in an ordinary way 
but the son of a free woman was born as a result of the promise. Abram had two things put in front of him. You can either save yourself by works or wait and be saved by grace. And Abram went to save himself by works. He said, I'm going to get the blessings on the basis of my own performance. And when you do that, everyone's life blows up. And look at our story. Everybody's life blows up because Abram is trying to earn his salvation through works, which is the basic reason for our inner bondage. We take something and we say, if I achieve that, I'll not be barren. And then it creates bondage in us. And then it just blows everything up, right? That's what's going on with Sarah. That's why she's doing these ridiculous things, why everybody's life is blowing up, why there's all this conflict. And the results of this are catastrophic. Ishmael's born, and then later on Isaac is born, and they don't get along. Ishmael gets kicked out of the family in Genesis 21. This conflict runs for thousands of years. I mean, Abraham basically said, hey, we're not having kids. Why don't you sleep with your servant? What's the worst that can happen? Do you know that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict traces its origins back to this? 4,000 years traces their conflict back to Genesis 16. Y'all, we are no different. When we do this, when we try to achieve the blessing for ourselves rather than receive it from God, we just leave a wake of destruction behind us. And you might not know that you're doing this, but your attempts to fix your own barrenness lead to your inner bondage, and the result is that people around you, people close to you, get hurt. You might not know you do this, but others around you feel it. And while you might not know that you're a hot mess of a tornado, those close to you do. I've walked through life with enough people to see this play out. We have an amazing ability to hurt those around us. All the time, we're thinking we're fixing our problems. And that's the issue. Barrenness leads to bondage, which leads to things blowing up. So how do you get free from your inner bondage? How do you get freed into the way of grace? What is, what is our hope in this cocktail of barrenness and bondage and things blowing up? Well, this passage and the whole Bible is saying that you need a new Adam, and it's not Abraham. And you need a new son, and it's not Ishmael. It's not even Isaac, the son Abram has with Sarah. It's not Ishmael. It's not Isaac. It's Emmanuel. Because an angel of the Lord appeared to another mother. Not an old lady, but a young mother. And like the angel who speaks to Hagar, he says, Behold, you will be pregnant, and you will have a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this son is Jesus, and he sees you. He sees those who are othered, who feel different. He sees the barren, the estranged, the enslaved. And he doesn't just see, but he is God. He's Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus entered into the blowout of our barrenness and our bondage. And why? Like, why didn't God just visit through an angel? Because he promised Abraham that he would bring the blessing as far as the curse is found. So this son, Jesus Christ, he went to the cross for us. He took on the bondage of sin for us. Jesus became sin for us. Second Corinthians says, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin for us. He also became barren for us. He was cut off for you. His whole life was barrenness. He gave up his life, was cut off for you so that in his resurrection, he might fill you with the fullness of his life. Jesus is the true son who was given for you, bound for you, barren for you, taking on your bondage and barrenness on the cross so that in him, you might have his freedom and his life. 
The cross was an exchange, a swap. He took your bondage and barrenness to give you real, deep, inward freedom in life. So what do you do with this inward freedom? What do you do when you receive this new life from Jesus? Do you, do you go and have a happy life? Go relax? Go about your own business? Look at God in this passage. What is his concern here? Who does he go after? Y'all, Hagar is an Egyptian. She's not a Hebrew. She is a woman, not a man. She is a slave, not free. 4,000 years ago, the deck is completely stacked against her. And not only that, Hagar and Ishmael are not in the chosen line. They don't show any particular faith in the promise that God has made to Abraham and Isaac. They move off in this whole other direction. And yet God is deeply concerned about their exploitation. Walter Brueggemann, um, who wrote a commentary on Genesis, says this. He said, God is not exclusively committed to Abraham and Sarah. That's what this is teaching. His concern is not confined to the elect line. There is such passion and such concern for the oppressed that his concern is there even for the troubled and the exploited that are outside of that line. Here's what that means. What are you supposed to do with your freedom? What are you supposed to do with your inward freedom? Well, you get inward freedom. God gives you inward freedom through Jesus so that you can go and work for the freedom, inward and outward, of anyone who's oppressed, no matter who they are. You're not supposed to just take your inward freedom and just have a happy life with it. You're supposed to see people who are outwardly and inwardly, spiritually, socially, economically, psychologically oppressed and broken to see people and say, I'm going to lay my life out for them just like God laid his life out for me. So who is that? Who is that at wake? Who needs to be seen? Who's in bondage? This is the Christian life. This is the picture of the Christian life. And this is amazing, the way that this ends. Hagar gets so excited that God sees her. And she should be. This is the God who flung the stars into the sky. Right? This is the God who spoke all that is in creation into existence with a word. And he sees her. She's, she is so excited that God sees her. A God that big, he notices her. He sees her. How much more excited should you be because you know something that she doesn't know? God says to you through the gospel of Jesus Christ, do I notice you? I'll tell you how important you are. I died for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Genesis 16. Thank you that you tell us in your word the true story of who we are and what sin has done to us. Lord, our barrenness and our bondage and, and the way that it brings um, wreckage, but the promise of your blessing, that you come after us, that you uh, free us from this and send us out to be a blessing. I want to pray for my friends here tonight. Lord, would you help us to believe this? Um, Lord, help us to see Jesus, the one who was bound and was barren for us so that we might have um, his life. Lord, thank you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.